Welcome back to the Planet Jesus podcast, the show for skeptics and Christians who want to learn more about the Bible and understand better how to interpret and apply it. This is episode 16, Judgment and Mercy, The Delicate Balance. In this episode, we will consider an often misunderstood passage regarding the commission of the disciples of Jesus to be fishers of men. What has been interpreted as a statement of evangelical inclusiveness is actually a message of judgment. That said, embedded in the story and its roots in Hebrew history, we see the mercy of God come through. Now here's your host, Rob Massey. So as stated in the introduction, embedded in the commission to be fishers of men is an Old Testament allusion to judgment. The Great Commission and becoming fishers of men are often looked at as an act of mercy, and in one way of looking at it, it is. But it is also a warning to an idolatrous and violent nation that could not bring themselves to act righteously towards the poor and the marginalized of society. Jesus was bringing a message to the people who should have understood the purposes of God. He was bringing a message to them that they needed to straighten up and that their closed ears and their closed eyes and their closed heart to others and to hearing the voice of God was going to come under judgment. And the way that he was going to get that message out was through people, by calling disciples to be fishers of men. Christians should read the scripture uh, from back to front and front to back. And I've said this many times, that it's impossible to understand the New Testament. And I loved Andy Stanley's book, Irresistible. Very good book, highly recommended for the way that we introduce the good news as a Jesus-centric message. But the words that Jesus used, he plucked from the messages and the storyline that Israel had been living on for generations. So we're not to discard it. As a matter of fact, if you're going to be a serious student of the New Testament and understand what it means, you're going to have to go back to the Old Testament to kind of understand the backdrop. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he recognized this risk. And he said that we should read the New Testament from the point of view of the Old warning us that, quote, Christians should not get to the New Testament too soon or too directly, end quote. That's from his letters from prison, um, his letters and papers from prison. So let's go to the passage in Luke that Jesus calls us to be fishers of men, and let's get that context. We'll start reading in Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing, 
but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That word Lord there is kyrios in the Greek. That will become important later. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men, or fishers of men, as some translations say it. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This passage is strongly connected to a passage in Isaiah. We look at this as the calling of the first disciples to preach the good news and preach the message and be catching men. The same situation is found in early Isaiah. Uh, specifically Isaiah the sixth chapter. Let's read that and we're going to compare these two passages. So the backdrop to Isaiah 6 is that King Uzziah has died and he was a beloved king and he had been considered righteous. But now the nation was in a very perplexing situation. They didn't know where they would turn to and whether the next king was going to be faithful or faithless. And so as Isaiah is contemplating this, he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Let's stop there in the eighth verse. So up to this point, what we see very similar to the Luke 5 passages is that they both recognize that they're in the presence of the Lord, both Peter and Isaiah. They both recognize that they're in the presence of the Lord after this kind of miraculous revelation that something of an epiphany has occurred. The, the big draft of fish or the vision of this holy temple and the whole earth being filled with his glory— this was an epiphany that they both had. That's uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 7, and Isaiah 6, uh, that verses 1 through 4. When they got to that point, they both recognize 
they both have a reaction and their reaction is, isn't, wow, cool. This is awesome. Hey, wow, man, God is, God's amazing, but he's, he can bring fish out of the sea when we fished all night and didn't find a thing. Or, hey, who needs a king, man? We got this God guy on the throne. It wasn't flippant. It wasn't like so many of our whoop, whoop type churches where we think that we've had this epiphany of God and then we go out and behave in some sort of a different way. This was like a moment. They both felt undone. Peter says, I'm a sinful man. Isaiah says that he has unclean lips. But both immediately are comforted by the Lord. One has a miraculous event that touches his lips and makes him clean and causes him to be able to speak uh, the words of God. The other has his sins forgiven and he's commissioned to become a fisher of men. So there's a, a reaction. In Luke chapter 5, verse 10, Peter is reassured uh, that he's, it's going to be okay, that, uh, that he's not undone because of his sinful condition. And the same is in the seventh chapter, uh, in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, in the seventh verse, when he's touched his lips and he says, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And then finally, they're both given a commission. Isaiah's commission will come later when he says, you know, he said in the end of the eighth verse, here I am, send me. In the ninth verse, he says, go and say to the people. So they're both given a commission. I think this is important. For one, for us not to overly trivialize an encounter with God. I'm afraid that we can do that too often in our churches. Say, God spoke to me. God said to me, he sent a 90 you know, foot Jesus to stand on my, you know, into my bed and tell me blah, blah, blah. That stuff is only sets us up for failure. Particularly when the world sees no change in our voice. When we recognize how undone we are in our conditions, and yet God has still, through his grace, commissioned us to speak to others, we've got to recognize that there is embedded in this story both mercy and judgment. We feel the judgment in the presence of the Lord of our undone and unclean condition, and at the same time, by an act of God, we are made clean and commissioned to do the thing that we feel unworthy to do. Very important to keep that balance there. I like what um, Richard Hayes says in one of his sermons. He said, most lectionaries bracket out verses 9 through 13 of Isaiah, saying, we don't want this kind of ministry. The lectionary, he claims, tries to claim the healing power without the judgment. Consequently, it ends up losing both. I think that's a very important quote. Let's look at what verse 9 of Isaiah says, Isaiah 6, verse 9 and 10. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, Lord? 
And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people from afar, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. That's a pretty stark message that Isaiah has been given. It's a pretty dark, ominous perspective on the future of Israel. But when our lectionaries, as Richard Hayes states, remove this type of language, we're in danger of only seeing the upside of the gospel and not the downside of continuing to reject it or worse, accepting it or claiming to accept it and living as Israel lived in the same abusive of pow- abuse of power, the same manipulative tactics, claiming God's uh, support and claiming an epiphany when we actually cannot see. So first we need to realize that the Lord uses men and women who are flawed, men of unclean lips and women who are sinful. But through an act beyond our ability to accomplish on our own, we are called to minister on behalf of God. What a commission. Uh, it's an it's uh it's daunting to think that we could somehow speak words that could be the salvation of other people that we could live lives that could be a testimony to the grace and mercy of God second both men Isaiah and Peter they recognize during their epiphanies that their unworthiness and God's holiness Christians shouldn't claim too much. Their experience with God uh, needs to be exemplified by a life of action. Our personal experiences with God should lead us to an uncomfortable revelation of personal inadequacy, quickly followed by a realization of God's grace and mercy. When God comes in and invades our space, it changes everything. Whatever our perspective is on King Uzziah, or fill in the blank, it could be the presidential election. Whatever our perspective, when we realize that God is on the throne, when the Lord is on the throne, when the Lord is the one who brings out abundantly, that there is a miraculous side, there's a mystery in God we recognize that it's not a light thing. So what about this idea of fishers of men? It's not referenced right there in uh, Isaiah 6, but it is referenced in a couple of other Old Testament passages. And every time that it is referenced, uh, it has a very dark um, meaning. So let's look at the first one, Jeremiah 16, 14. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country, 
and out of all countries where they have been driven, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. See, look at that hope there, that mercy there, that returning from captivity, Babylonian captivity. That's what's the reference there to all the countries that have been driven to. But look at verse 16. This is how they came to find themselves scattered throughout all these countries. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all of their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. So here, Israel has been scattered because of their idolatry and their violence. Because of their attitudes to the poor, because of their actions as spiritual men in rejection of other nations, they were to be a kingdom of priests and they refused to follow that commission. But this idea of hunters and fishers are both the idea of drawing them back into their promised land and their land of inheritance and also a gathering for judgment because God knows their iniquity and knows their ways. They were not hidden from him. Let's look at a verse over here in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 29, verse 2. This passage is referring to a prophecy against Egypt. Egypt is this powerful nation that came to kind of control the area in which Israel had inhabited. But Israel was a buffer state. They were constantly being pulled on by the Babylonians, by the Egyptians, by the Assyrians. Their allegiance was constantly being demanded by one of those powers. And they tried to maintain their autonomy during those times, but it became increasingly difficult. At this point in their history, Egypt becomes an ally of them against Babylon. The people of Israel are rejecting uh, God's call for them to be dispersed into Babylon, and they're trying to depend, their leadership is, on the power of Egypt. But this is what Ezekiel says, starting in the second verse. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams, that says my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaw. And I will make the fish of your streams stick to your scales, and I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. I will cast you into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your streams. You will fall on the open field and not be gathered together. The beasts of the earth and the birds of the heavens I give you as food. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they grasped you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. And when they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins to shake. 
Therefore, the Lord says, I will bring you the sword upon you, and I will cut off from you man and beast, and the land of Egypt shall be a desolation and a waste. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. This is a kind of another dark and menacing passage, but the idea of this being fished out of the streams and cast out into judgment is the key here. They had broken promise. They had broken faith with weak Israel. And that breaking of faith caused Israel to to, um, collapse in their dependence on Egypt. That was both an indictment to Egypt and to Israel. Egypt didn't fulfill their promises to defend them against Babylon, and Israel itself was depending on Egypt instead of putting their confidence in God. One last verse about the fishing. That's in Amos, the fourth chapter, verses one and two. Let's look at that. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppose the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. So here's a situation where the poor are being oppressed and crushed. The people who are supposed to be their authorities, which is the husbands, were this was definitely not a, a feminist culture or, or an egalitarian culture. They were supposed to have uh, you know, authority over them, and they're living lavishly. This is a way of saying that Israel was living in richness and in lavishness without c- consideration of the poor and the needy. And God is saying that because of his holiness, he can no longer allow that to go on. I have, I have hated the idea of the judgment of God. But when I or anyone else oppresses the poor and the needy, when I refuse to see the needs in this world and I pour on myself lavishly, then I deserve to come under judgment. God has to stand up for the poor. If we don't, if we don't stand up for the poor, then he has to stand up for them in the way that God stands up for the poor is through judgment. And the the position of the Christian or the Jew or the um, Islamists, if we truly believe in a God who is going to set all things right in this world, then we have to stand in faith and not take negative action ourselves We need to be able to stand back and let God handle the situation. But at the same time, we need to stand between the poor and the weak and those that are oppressing them. And sometimes that means, you know, bad news for us. He's saying that they're going to be fished out and judged because of their actions. And if Christians think that they're excluded from any kind of judgment from God because we somehow said the sinner's prayer and that made us ready for two worlds in a day, and we do nothing to manifest the holiness of God in this world, a holiness that is exemplified through helping the poor and the, and the needy, we've got another thing coming. We're going to be surprised. So this delicate balance of judgment and mercy, it's, it's implied in all of these passages. If you were to continue to read through Amos, 
Chapter 5, he offers life. If you look at Ezekiel, you look at the last chapters of Ezekiel, you're going to see that there's a hope of a restored universal temple where many people and fish are healed and trees and lands and desert spaces are healed. And in Jeremiah, you can see that he's calling people back. He's bringing them from the nations that they've been scattered. There's hope embedded in it. There's mercy embedded in it. But what is mercy worth? What is the value of mercy if there is no prospect of judgment? If God is not truly holy, what, what does it mean? What's it all about? I think it's also interesting that in that first passage that we started with, in Isaiah, the sixth chapter, in that 13th verse, he says that a tenth of the city will be saved, like a remnant. You can say, well, Rob, that's pretty sad. You know, only a tenth are going to be saved? Well, although Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos all have a merciful strand, they're not always as merciful as the New Testament turns it around to be. I'll just give you an example over here in, in Revelation 11. This is, this is it. This is the final thing, right? We're going to see the seventh trumpet in the 15th verse when we have declared by the angel that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Handel's Messiah captures the, the completeness of this passage, the finality of it. But just above that, it looks like the complete opposite is happening where the beast rises up out of the bottomless pit, tramples the righteous of the world, and their bodies are laying in the streets of the cities. And it says that after three days and a half, the breath of God entered back into the righteous, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all those that saw them. That's verse 11. Verse 12, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven, these righteous, in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that same hour, there was a great earthquake. Now, if we were, had time, we'd go back to the Old Testament. We'd look at all the earthquake passages that that is an epiphany. That's when God comes on the scene. There's a judgment in his presence. There's an earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. The only other time that that's referenced, a tenth of the city fell, is that passage in Isaiah the 6, where only a tenth of the city remains, and nine tenths are judged for their idolatry and their violence. But here, the idolatry and the violence of the beast and those that support the beast and their, and their domination and their violence against the righteous only a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. It's interesting that that 7,000 is mentioned there. The other time it's mentioned is when Elijah is complaining to God that he is alone, that he is the only one who stayed faithful to God in all of Israel during the reigns of Ahab and Jezebel. And while Elijah is complaining, the angel says to Elijah, 
I have 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. So the angel's trying to assure Isaiah, we have 7,000 righteous that remain in the city. The rest, yes, agreed, are idolaters, but there are at least 7,000 that are not. But notice how this is turned around. Those that were idolaters, those uh, that were rejecting the righteous people of the earth and supporting the beast, only 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. So instead of a, only a tenth being saved, like Isaiah said, only a tenth is judged. And instead of there only being 7,000 righteous, here John reflects on the idea that there are only 7,000 that remain idolaters and are judged. Notice what he says, how he finishes that verse out. And the rest gave glory to the God of heaven. The rest gave glory to the God of heaven. That's a turn of events. That's taking judgment passages from the Old Testament, not losing the judgment aspect of the work of God, because we recognize that there will be people who will continue to be idolaters, that will continue to be violent, that will continue to oppress the poor and the needy. Businesses, governments, religious organizations, they will continue to be unprofitable in this world and, and, and oppressive. And the holiness of God demands that he judges that. But the way that the plan of God will be unfolded, when we contribute to the work that God is doing, we're going to see the salvation of the world, not the judgment and annihilation of it. Only a small remnant will be judged because of their hard-headedness and their hard-heartedness. I'm going to close with this, the lyrics from uh, a song that Skillet has. It's called Saviors of the World. And they capture our tendency as humans to destroy our world through our bad behaviors and the redemptive aspects of God to save us and deliver us. And then the commissioning of us to go and be saviors of the world as he is. Streets filled with blood black and red, dreams and hearts that once knew love are cold and dead, breathing rust, it's come to this, we burnt to dust, an apocalypse, but we could live again if we can find ourselves, we are the saviors of the world, and I will not be ruled, we are kings and conquerors, and I won't bow to you. They will not control us anymore. We will not conform, no, anymore. We are the saviors, the saviors, the saviors of the world. Cities will burn. The end is come. Paradise is lost. We wonder what we've done. Riches rust. The iron fist crashes down on the powerless. But hope could live again, if we can find ourselves. We are the saviors of the world, and I will not be ruled. We are kings and conquerors, and I won't bow to you. They will not control us. In today's busy world, time is valuable, and we're grateful you've chosen to spend some time listening to the Planet Jesus podcast. The show notes for this and all episodes, as well as links to any source material, can be found at our website, planetjesus.net. 
Become a part of the conversation on Facebook at Planet Jesus Podcast and on Twitter at Planet Jesus and the number two. If you've enjoyed this show, please subscribe and share it with a friend. We would also value your honest rating and review. If you'd like to help defer some of the costs, please visit our Patreon account at patreon.com slash planetjesus. The Planet Jesus Podcast is a production of Rob Massey and edited by me, David L. White.